financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. The Bills are taking the day off, but that doesn't mean Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK CPAs and Business Consultants, will take a day off. As you can see, we are no longer in the St. John Fisher University dorms. We are back in our home bunkers. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. And uh, I will tell you, Jonah, there is at least one person who's going to be happy to see you out of the dorms and back home. And Mary Pat, if you're listening, and I think you are, because you are clearly a diehard TGAFer. I met Mary Pat at the uh, Pep Boys. My car broke down uh, earlier in the week, and she was waiting for an inspection to be done on hers while I was waiting for my ride to pick me up. And she sidled over and talked about what a great uh fan she is of the podcast and made it a point to say she missed your tree last week which means she got to the end of the podcast when we dropped that easter egg in there uh to see if anybody listens until the end and that was what we talked about at the very end of the podcast was how you were uh, you missed your tree and so mary pat thank you for listening and being such a loyal uh subscriber to tim graham and friends uh, but she uh, is going to be thrilled that we are back in our comfy confines of home and not in the dorms. Jonah, yeah, do you that- get stopped in public a lot? Uh, people uh, want to ask you about uh, Tim Graham and friends? I wouldn't say a lot, but there has been a time or two when I've been recognized even by voice as, you know, hey, you're from TGAF. And then I have some friends who listen to this podcast and sometimes they'll follow up with questions, maybe things that I referenced, especially last week, we were talking about some old war stories from the dorms and and wanting more detail that kind of comes, doesn't come out in the podcast. But mostly, so I don't get recognized, but I do get reaction from regular listeners. And sometimes it's a little, it's it's fun. And it's also sometimes a little surprising what resonates with people and what they pick up on and what they want to ask follow-up questions and the Easter eggs that they pull themselves out of the basket. Yeah, it made my week. I mean, to get, uh, to have somebody... Uh, not only say that they enjoy the work, but also that they are uh, they are such voracious consumers of it that they stay to the very end. They don't get bored with us at some point and find something else to look at on YouTube is uh, is uh, humbling. I, I do think that's the nature of podcasts and maybe you get some of the same elements in talk radio, but more so than what we do in, in our other jobs with writing and print and television you get that kind of intimate connection with your audience and then they if you happen to see them outside of the podcast they can bring that back to you and that's kind of the secret sauce i think that makes many podcasts popular 
Yeah, that's and you mentioned the voice thing too. I, I came walking in and she said that what it was was when I started talking to the guy when I'm dropping the car off and I was telling him what my problem was. And she's like, oh, that's Tim Graham. She recognized my voice. So that was pretty cool. Well, I was at a business. We won't mention who it is because they're not a sponsor of the show. We won't give them the free plug. But I was at a business about a year ago, <laughs> actually working on a story uh, that I was freelancing for a magazine. But and someone popped their head out of a side office recognizing my name and my voice and they were like are you are you Jonah from TGAF and that was maybe the first time I've ever uh had that kind of experience come up from a podcast like this but there's people that I know also that weren't aware of me and my writing or anything that I've done journalistically before the radio show and the podcast and kind of came into following me on Twitter or knowing what I do and following some of the other stuff I cover because of the exposure from this podcast I've always been pretty grateful of that and going back to our radio show the same dynamic there yeah so my thanks to mary pat and uh, uh and to everyone else out there who who listens and uh and watches on youtube and this is the point where i should also ask that if you do uh follow along uh to please subscribe uh to rate it on your podcast platform of choice we're on all the big ones itunes spotify amazon uh, I think Stitcher's about to go under, uh, but we're on Stitcher too for as long as that uh, that exists. SoundCloud is an old old timey one that uh, we're still on. We're here and there. Uh, please uh, give us a rating, a like, whatever it is uh, that you can do uh, to help push us along. Yeah, you know, and I might as well announce here uh, that uh, CTBK CPAs and Business Consultants has uh, renewed its uh, title sponsorship of Tim Graham and Friends. So we're thankful to CTBK for sticking with us. And uh, to everyone out there who's uh, listening and watching, uh, I mentioned uh, earlier about uh, the Bills being off today. So it's a good time to hit the pause button. I think they're, what, six practices in, seven practices in. Um, we uh, last came to you uh, on Thursday from St. John Fisher University, and a lot has happened since then. Of course, DeMar Hamlin practiced in pads. Uh, Kim Pagula showed up uh, to watch practice over the weekend. Josh Allen has taken some hits and thrown some picks. Um, where do you want to start, Jonah? Just on your uh, your observations, you've been out there every day at St. John Fisher. Uh, what's uh, what stood out to you so far as they uh, as they continue to ramp up towards that uh, preseason opener against the Colts? I think that's what stood out is that the Bills have looked good, which isn't really a hot take. It's kind of always the case when you're watching a team regularly in training camp whether it's the offense or the defense, no matter who's maybe having the better of the day, I think you get more impressed by what you see than worried about what you don't see. Maybe it was different with some bad Bills teams, but you can find reasons to be excited about everything from Stephon Diggs, the way he's kind of blended back into the chemistry of this team and also making a highlight play almost every practice and Dalton Kincaid looking kind of every bit what, the Bills thought they were getting and what Bills fans are hoping they're getting in that first round draft pick and health throughout the team, aside from Von Miller and some of the guys that started and haven't joined the practice yet, but there haven't been any significant injuries. Tim Settle has a groin injury beyond that. That's really all that's happened and a few dings and stuff that hasn't really lingered, but there hasn't been any bad health news and, and baked into that is also DeMar Hamlin, which has probably been the biggest story of training camp that he's been out there as a full participant to an, all the drills, all the reps, all the team reps that he would normally get as a second team safety, taking a little bit of contact. And that was a significant day in his story. And also for Bills fans and 
people covering the team. And one thing, this isn't new, but I've really been struck by covering camp is how big of a star DeMar Hamlin is. He's probably the second most popular player on the team now after Josh Allen. And from a media standpoint, maybe the biggest name and just watching DeMar Hamlin practice and all the kids with their signs and their jerseys and their heart hands emojis. Uh, he, he's become a very marketable figure and, a, and someone that's a little bit hard to take your eyes off of. When you see him on the field, you think, wow, that's DeMar Hamlin. And a year ago, he was a pretty obscure backup player on the Bills. And, and through some unfortunate circumstances, the, the course of his life and his celebrity and his football stature has changed quite dramatically in the last year yeah you're right a year ago uh we were learning who damar hamlin and jaquan johnson were because jordan poyer was out and he had the elbow injury early in training camp and uh, we were wondering if uh, jordan poyer is going to be out an extended period of time uh, who is going to fill that role and it turned out to be flipped by the time the regular season came around it was micah hyde who was lost for the season with his neck injury and that is when uh, we really learned about DeMar Hamlin. And he was a, a serviceable safety, uh, clearly uh, uh, a big drop off. Uh, but most safeties would be from an all pro, uh, such as Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde, you know, highly decorated safeties, uh, the most decorated safety duo in in Bill's uh, history. And um so, yeah, there was a, a drop-off, clearly, but he held his own on a on a Super Bowl-caliber defense and, you know, earned his way. And then, of course, with what happened in Cincinnati in January, it's been a, an incredible story to see all these different mileposts that he's hitting uh, with coming back, uh, with being on the field, being cleared uh, from doing half-speed workouts to full workouts uh, back in uh, mandatory minicamp to full contact and being out there uh, doing uh, regular reps with uh, uh, with everyone else. Uh, it's been uh, really encouraging. I, I wrote a story uh, a week or so ago that ran in which we took a look at whether or not DeMar Hamlin could actually be cut. And uh, that's something that would seem unfathomable, but um, the, the reason I brought it up is because it has kind of happened before where the sentimental favorite, uh, fresh off his emotional ESPYs appearance, uh, walks off the stage uh, with his uh, Jimmy V Perseverance Award in his hand, and two months later, the Cincinnati Bengals cut him, and that's Devin Still, uh, who became a national story uh, through his daughter's uh, leukemia fight, and uh, she's been in remission now for for eight years. But that happened a while ago, and uh, it's something to revisit. I, I thought it was worth checking into because I think that I think that people should be prepared for the possibility. Uh, it shouldn't be shocking if he doesn't make the team because he is the second best backup safety uh, at best on a team that keeps four safeties. So he's kind of on the bubble a little bit. He'll probably make the team, but uh, it can be uh, it might be an issue uh, that and he's going to have to be ready to play. And we don't really know that yet. We probably won't until we see full contact. Yes, we've seen him in pads, but we haven't seen full contact yet. That's coming soon. And then we have the three preseason games uh, against uh, Indianapolis at home and then the two road games at Pittsburgh at Chicago before the regular season. He's going to have to show that he's ready mentally and physically, emotionally. Uh, that's the one thing that I took away from uh, his um, 
his padded practice uh, from a couple of days ago is how emotional everybody was. His agent was in attendance. His parents were in attendance. He had family, friends there. It was a big deal for him to get past that hurdle of just being in pads. How is he going to emotionally handle all the other mileposts that are about to come in terms of a referee blowing the whistle and these are live plays. Uh, here we go. Uh, there's a, a, a guy on the other side who needs to make his roster, whether it be, you know, the Colts or uh, in his hometown of Pittsburgh where the second preseason game is, you know, you got guys, they're going to be going full go. He's going to have to play special teams as the, as a backup safety. Those are the highest collision plays out there. Uh, that is where the, you know, the NFL has tried to legislate uh, safety into those, uh, parts of the game, kick coverage, punt coverage, um, blocking on those plays. In fact, there's a story out today that the NFL is considering uh, the XFL's uh, model of um, you know starting with the uh, the kick cover team actually just lined up ten yards away from the blockers uh, on the kick return, uh, just to you know so that way you you don't have guys running full speed at each other, uh, hurtling their bodies at one another. Uh, but that's what special teams in the NFL is still uh, as much as they've tried to uh, add measures and uh, take those plays out of the game and make them less relevant. They still are inherently dangerous. So anyways, uh, it's, there's a lot to see yet uh, from DeMar Hamlin. And uh, clearly uh, he is, uh, uh, like you say, you know, the fans are rooting for him. The, the world's rooting for him. Uh, he's one of the great unifiers uh, a folk hero, I think, uh, already in sports, minted, established for the rest of his life, whether he plays another down or not. I mean, this guy has his place in sports history, and um, uh, it's uh, it's apparent that uh, that that it's been a uh, that he lifts up his teammates too. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next. Yeah, you mentioned the emotions of it, and I think it was as emotional as it can be for Demar Hamlin. It's emotional for a lot of the people around him, his teammates, uh, his family, his younger brother who was out there kind of practicing with him. And you could sort of see that I don't think anybody expected anything bad to happen at that first padded practice, but it was a relief for a lot of people involved to watch him practice and then watch him walk off the field and smile and sign autographs and, and have gotten through that mile post without any setbacks or anything whatsoever. So what you were talking about cutting – whether he makes the team or not, I really don't think there's a chance that he doesn't make the team. I think there certainly was in the spring and coming into this camp. But now at this point, I think he's pretty entrenched as the fourth safety, maybe even, you know, has an opportunity to compete with Taylor Rapp to be the third safety or. or well, he's you know, competing with more. Dean Marlowe for that last safety spot. Dean Marlowe does play a lot of special teams. His whole career has been based on special teams. He started the last three games of the season, uh, the finale against the, um, the, the Patriots and then the two playoff games, uh, he, he goes back a long ways with Sean McDermott, uh, to Carolina. So Sean McDermott clearly likes Dean Marlowe. They traded for him last season because they right. wanted to shore up the safety position. Um, but, but I want to point out, Jonah, I mean, like you say, I do believe he's all, yeah, he is. He does belong on the team. If everything being equal, if healthy, all that stuff. But we heard comments from him in his news conference that he's not even really thinking about the Colts game. That Colts game's next week. I mean, there are still things, there are unknown unknowns about DeMar Hamlin and how he is going to handle this next month. So I think that there are still a lot of variables uh, in play here with um, 
with where he is, with his mindset and whether, whether or not, you know, cause he's, he's mentioned he's, he's been scared. He's been, he's been anxious about this and we're not going to know until we see him go through some other stages. It's not as though he's in pads and he's back. Uh, it, but it seemed as though that was the, that was the, those were the talking points after that practice was it's almost like back, you know, he's, he's probably not going to be well, fully back until we, until we see much more. But, but because he is, it does seem like he's fully back. He's been out there for all the practice. He's on the field a lot, not a starter, but you know, Jordan Foyer had a veteran rest day yesterday and then the bills have veteran safeties, him and Hyde that sometimes miss some reps for their own, you know, physical preservation and things like that. So hot, uh, DeMar Hamlin has been out in the practice reps a lot more than Dean Marlowe or any of the other safeties you see on kind of that third team. They're, they're using guys like Cam Lewis and Jamarcus Ingram a little bit in those spots that have over the past couple of years been practice squad guys that the Bills use at different positions and things like that. I think DeMar Hamlin was always ahead of all of those players that were on the team last year, and it's still in that spot, getting special team reps as well. I mean, he's not taking a lot of contact but it doesn't seem like they're holding back his rep count and his overall usage in any way. And I think, I don't think the bills can cut DeMar Hamlin for PR reasons and the reasons with his contract and the vested veteran status. I think it has to be a situation where if he's not on the 53 man roster, then he's on injured reserve or something else where he's still, you know, honoring his contract. And I think the way for the bills to possibly do that, it would have required him starting on PUP and then having that option of starting the season on PUP and IR and the different things that can be done that way. And the fact that the Bills did not do that and really have indicated that he's kind of, at least as a practice player, back to normal, back to normal uh, workload in practice signals. I think he's back in that position that he had on the team last year. And unless there's a setback, I just don't really see it going in a different direction. Yeah, uh, and we're going to be joined here briefly. I should have mentioned this at the top. We're going to be joined briefly by Florina Altschiller, uh, who uh, has been a guest on Tim Graham and Friends in the past. Uh, she's going to talk about the latest in the Matt Ariza case. Uh, Matt Ariza is now suing his accuser, and uh, there's been some developments there. I thought it would be a good opportunity to check back in with Florina. Uh, she's a former sex crimes prosecutor for the state of Alaska. She now practices here in western New York, and uh uh, has been uh, an analyst uh, at WKBW Channel 7 and uh, does a lot of great work. And she's always uh, she's always been great when she's appeared with us. So we're going to talk about uh, the Matt Ariza case. Uh, but before uh, we get to Florina, uh, Joan, I want to mention uh, uh, Josh Allen. And he has taken some hits. He's been uh, limping a little bit. Um, he's been not particularly careful with the ball. You know, that's the one thing that the people were hoping that he was going to work on. I don't know that you can work on that really. I mean, how can you, I mean, is there some virtual reality type stuff that you can do uh, to make better decisions uh, in the off season to train your brain? I don't know, but uh, you know, uh, he's, he's thrown some interceptions uh, and of course he's wearing the non-contact Jersey. This isn't full go. And he's not facing a uh, a full throttle pass rush. Uh, but uh, your thoughts, uh, you, and again, you've been out there more than I have uh, because I've been working on some other stories. Uh, what have you seen out of this, uh, this, this Josh Allen, who famously a couple of months ago said he's never been more focused on football uh, than he's ever been in his entire life. 
And uh, then we see him on page six of the New York Post and the cover of Madden and at various golf events. And it seems like it's been a particularly ordinary offseason for Josh Allen in that regard. Uh, he's a superstar quarterback. And I don't know, now I'm rambling. What uh, what have you been seeing out of Josh Allen? I think the overall impression of Josh Allen is that he looks great. You know, the elbow is healthy. The arm looks great. He's running around. His haircut looks good. He looks to be in a you know, a positive mood all the time, whether it's with his teammates and his overall, I think, kind of stature and celebrity in now this sporting market and the league itself. He seems to really be, you know, every bit the Josh Allen that we've always seen, if not an even more enhanced and brighter star than he's been. As he, You know, the Madden game comes out, he's going to be on the cover of that and some of the different media appearances that he makes nationally. However, with that being, you know, Josh Allen looking like Josh Allen, he's still running around and he's still being the, uh, you know, kind of aggressive, I don't want to call him careless, but maybe carefree type quarterback that we've seen early in his career. You know, the first play where he got a little bit dinged up, got the wind knocked out of him uh, earlier this week uh, was a play where he was out there trying to catch a pass in a goal line situation. I mean, that's maybe not what you want to see from the quarterback that you're really trying to keep healthy and you're really trying to, uh, and I don't know how much the Bills really need to try to change Josh Allen's game, but there's been some rhetoric about uh, avoiding some of the costly turnovers and being more careful and being more mature and smarter and maybe an older uh, mid-career style of play from Josh Allen. And maybe we will see that at some points this season, but I don't know if we've really seen strong evidence of that so far in training camp. And I wouldn't be at all worried about him being hurt from the hits that he's taken so far but it kind of makes you realize how perilous things can be for the Bills if he happened to get injured. And if he did get injured in training camp like Joe Burrow did, uh, that would change a lot of the thoughts and feelings and narratives around the Bills. And it just seems like, you know, maybe he should be a little bit more careful. Maybe the Bills should be a little bit more careful with him. And if they're, I think they're trying, but, you know, the evidence so far has been that it's same old Josh Allen for better or worse. Yeah, I still think that he's the second best quarterback in the NFL. And I think that there is uh, uh, the difference between number one and number five in the NFL is razor thin when you're talking about Herbert and Burrow and Hertz. And, uh, you know, obviously Patrick Mahomes is is number one, but uh, there's this group in there that's pretty close. But I think that if you were to make the, uh, you know, in the theoretical barroom argument, uh, who would you trade Josh Allen for? I think that there are teams that would probably line up and say, yeah, we'll take Josh Allen uh, over our quarterback. Uh, everybody, maybe the Chiefs, um, if you had that opportunity. He's that good. He does everything so well. Uh, but when you're talking about uh, falling short of the Super Bowl on a team with Super Bowl aspirations, and Stefan Diggs admitting that while maybe the Bills window isn't closing, his window is, as he said at his uh, news conference on the first day of camp, uh, that he has more good seasons behind him than ahead of him. Uh, and you want to make that jump from just missing out on the AFC championship game to not only getting to the Super Bowl and winning it, the Lombardi trophy now is hanging uh, a large banner uh, within the the Bills field house uh, to keep them, uh, keep their eyes on the prize. And um, when you're talking about those aspirations, then you do need your quarterback to get, find ways to get better. Uh, and that being said, I know that he played a 
damn near flawless game uh, in Arrowhead Stadium uh, when 13 seconds occurred. Um, he's done his part, but the Bills still need to find ways to get better. And if their quarterback can reduce his turnovers by 30 percent, uh, then you're looking at uh, much better chances on a game-to-game basis, particularly uh, in January and February. So it is important. So I, I guess, you know, we are nitpicking, but that's what happens when you're this close. And that's, I mean, to to evoke uh, DeMar Hamlin again, there are only 53 spots on this roster. And that's where I think that we, this is a team that needs the nitpick to find out, you know, that, you don't want to keep a guy just for PR purposes. Uh, we need to make sure that all 53 of our guys are the best 53 that we can find and the most focused 53 and the most dedicated 53, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we still have a couple well, of minutes, I think. Yeah, before no, we get no, to I Florida. got a little more of that. With, oh, with okay. I was going to um, maybe talk about blue collar you, but what, what do you got? Oh, no, I just wanted to, I, I thought of a good example of something that happened in practice that kind of, might crystallize this a little bit. And I think I do believe that Josh Allen and, and probably the Bills offensive coaches and maybe the whole organization have, you know, a, a concerted belief and want to, and kind of in their heads want to find a way to protect Josh Allen's health more, to protect the football more, to play a little bit of a more refined, uh, more careful style of play in certain situations. I just wonder, this has always been the case with Josh Allen, whether it's still the case that those competitive urges and, you know, the impulses when the juices get flowing for him on the field, how much does some of that go out the window and he just starts playing like that golden retriever player. And, you know, there was a play that happened in practice. Puna Ford gets an interception and ends up running it back for a touchdown. It's kind of a fun moment for the fans because, you know, uh, know, he's a big defensive tackle. Josh Allen chases him down and tries to poke out the fumble. And that made it even more fun and more entertaining. And I think a lot of the way reasons he did that was for the crowd's sake. But it was also, again, kind of a young, you know, your, your starting quarterback doesn't need to be, you know, taking that extra sprint rep and trying to make that play and taking on a much bigger player in what I don't even think was a padded practice. Um, and in game situations, you've seen quarterbacks get injured trying to make tackles after interceptions that were maybe a play based on emotion and not – the intelligence of the game. And I do think Josh Allen's smart enough to figure some of these things out and maybe not do that very often, but you're still seeing that balance, I think, between his his instinct, his nature and his nurture and kind of the, the Josh Allen that you get on Sundays when there's 80,000 people in the stands and he's really fired up, isn't always the one that's sitting in front of the microphone on Wednesday, kind of with a much more measured outlook on the game. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And uh, he's uh, that's that's it makes him who he is. And uh, I don't know how much of that you can get out of somebody's game. And I liken it to the boxer who uh, changes trainers uh, later in his career because he needs to refine something or there's a nuance or he's trying to get that extra edge. Uh, and then sure enough, goes through six, eight months of training for a specific opponent. And as soon as that bell rings and the punches start flying, he's the same fighter he's always been because it's hardwired in him to do certain things. It's in his DNA, literally. And uh, 
you know, I, I don't know how much nuance uh, Josh Allen is going to pick up between now and the end of his career, other than just experience and those types of, you know, mental reps going through certain situations, both on the field and off. I don't know that there's any kind of specific training that can be done uh, to get the Josh Allen-ness out of Josh Allen. I think that uh, he's he's he is what he is, and Bills fans should be thankful for that because he's one of the best. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, the best quarterback in Bill's history already. And I know that Jim Kelly, we can talk about the getting to four Super Bowls and that type of thing. But I think that um, if you were to do the the thought experiment of plugging Josh Allen on the 1990s Buffalo Bills, um, you can go ahead and give him a couple of those Lombardi trophies. And Jim um, Kelly, Jim Kelly, the player who stood in there and, and took the hits and threw interceptions and played a somewhat reckless style. And I don't really think, I mean, he did, maybe change his game a little bit with age, but not really. I think he played that way till the end, till he got knocked out of his last game. And maybe for better or worse, Josh Allen will will always play like the Josh Allen that got him the cover of the Madden football game and, and everything that's made Josh Allen as popular as he is, uh, I think is rolled into the way he plays in that style. The hurdles, you know, the, uh, you know, not sliding not going out of bounds, taking the hit, maybe even liking to the, the delivery of a hit, uh, lowering his shoulder, doing all, you know, standing in the pocket one extra second or scrambling around trying to make, make something happen. Um, yeah, that's, that's the but beauty I do of think Josh you, Allen. If Josh Allen is trying to do more of that in games, training camp practices are where you start doing that. We should maybe see him stepping out of bounds and, you know, spiking the ball and, and, and avoiding, any time he does have mentally condition yourself to do yeah. those things. Yeah, you're right. Uh, let's touch on blue collar. You, uh, we have not, uh, Florina Altschiller has not, uh, checked into the Tim Graham and friends green room yet. So, uh, your thoughts on blue collar. You, um, we were, we were on the show last week, uh, discussing, uh, how much better it would have been if they had a home game and playing on the road as the defending champs, uh, certainly didn't do him any favors. Uh, if uh, if Blue Collar U is playing uh, at uh, Alumni Arena, do you think they they survive that uh, that uh, that regional? It probably does change the dynamic of that game a bit, both in uh, the way maybe the Buffalo team would have played on its home floor, where they didn't lose a game as seniors with most of these guys in that group, and only lost one game uh, the year before as juniors. However, and also the Syracuse team, maybe they don't play quite as well uh, if they're in a road environment than a semi-home environment, although a lot of those players on that Bayham team aren't Syracuse guys, so that I don't know how that factors in. But they did have the crowd behind them, and that might have been a factor. But, you know, the Buffalo team came out and, and had a 15-point lead in the first quarter, and they really looked like they were the better team and going to win that game running away. Uh, Bayheim's team changes to a 2-3 zone, which – I think you got to expect that from a Syracuse team, even if they only have <laughs> right. half of the guys and don't have Jim Beheim coaching. But he he was sitting there in the Speaking arena. Speaking of I being think. in the DNA. Right, exactly. And I, I think the Buffalo team was ready for that. I think they knew that there was a defense that they might see and, and what they have to do to attack it. But they missed every shot. They missed at one point 20. Did not make a three. Three-point shots in a row. And that's how you beat a zone. I'm sorry, I and, talked over you. How many in a row was it? It was 23 point shots in a row at one point. Like, cause oh. they started off a little bit hot against, you know, the I was watching the game and I didn't, I wasn't keeping track really. I knew they were missing a, missing a ton. I thought maybe I looked away from the TV and missed a make at some point, but 20 in a row. 
Yeah, they were four for 29 at the end of the game. And I don't know what the first quarter was, but that they made a few. So I think they were maybe three for eight or three for seven in the first quarter. And then got to that point with only making four by the end of the game. And you can't beat a zone without making outside shots. And because they have good shooters, they kept taking the outside shots. They kept running the offense to get these three-point shots that is the way that they would get themselves back in the game when they got down and none of them went in. And they had a lot more shot attempts. They had more offensive rebounds. They they forced more turnovers. They were probably playing harder and hustling and playing that blue-collar style. But you can't win a basketball game without putting the ball in the basket no matter how well you play in the other aspects of the game. And it really came down to not being able to make those shots and maybe playing on a home floor where all these guys spent their college careers and, and shot. They practice in that gym a lot. I don't think a Buffalo team shoots that poorly on its home floor, but that's the way it goes in this tournament. And, and you do get an opportunity to play some home games in a regional if you do host, but the vast majority of the teams in this tournament are playing on neutral sites or road environments. And then you get to the, uh, you know, the championship rounds and that's on a neutral floor for pretty much every one of the teams. So this isn't a basketball event where home court advantage is really a big part well, of it. Well, let me ask you this though, Jonah, you're connected with the local college basketball community um, better than anybody else. Um, had you heard any regret voiced from people that, meh, we should have, we should have worked a little harder to get, get the games here and maybe, you know, they, they'd keep, they'd still be alive. Cause look, it is good publicity. No matter for whatever reason, schools have had some friction with, uh, with TBT. Uh, we even saw Syracuse, uh, Syracuse's court wasn't even used in Syracuse. And there's all kinds of different reasons for that. And there seems to be some political reasons, uh, where they're anyways, not everybody's meshed on this, but it was great publicity, um, uh, for, the University of Buffalo basketball program last year and this year heading into it that had they stayed alive, it would have maybe had some value other than whatever they were going to get at the gate for those uh, specific games. I haven't heard anything that I would say that, you know, UB regrets not trying to get the temporary air conditioning or doing more to bring the event to alumni arena. I do think there's some disappointment on all sides that it couldn't happen and people at UB that wanted it to be on campus and because of the air conditioning situation, it was unable to happen. I think there's maybe more disappointment and some regret from the other side, from Blue Collar U and the TBT that they weren't able to make this happen. And then it does sort of seem like they've hit a bit of a dead end with trying to host this event at Alumni Arena. And then it doesn't seem like there's a workable solution for paying for and finding that air conditioning and making that gym suitable for the TBT next summer, but I think there's some motivation to try to find another venue or a combination of venues in Buffalo, downtown, maybe somewhat involving the arena or around the arena. There's, there's other challenges, maybe more financial challenges involved in that, but that could be perhaps less expensive than it would have been to uh, equip the air conditioning and alumni arena. And I really do hope it happens, but also it did miss a little bit of a moment in time of having this team, all back together as the reigning champions, getting their rings or raising a banner or doing whatever type of acknowledgement that could have happened. And that can still happen next year, but a year removed and not being the reigning champions takes a little bit of the shine off of it. You don't know how many of these guys will all come back next year together. And if that happens, you know, if they have that kind of curtain call at ECC or even, I think the downtown arena would be cool, but at another college's gym, 
it's not the same as doing it on the home floor where they played in their college games. And this celebration that the people associated with this team and the alumni want to have is about more than winning the TBT million dollar prize last summer. It's an overall celebration of all of the success these players had and winning four MAC championships and NCAA tournament games and being nationally ranked. This is the victory lap for all of that, plus what they've done in the TBT. And I still hope something like that happens, but it does seem like that moment in time, as I called it, the opportunity to really do it in the perfect way uh, came to pass this past summer. Yeah, I, I agree. It was a missed opportunity, um, but there is a there was a decision that had to be made, and it was a lot of money involved. And it's not uh, I, I don't know that it was a fumble. It was a missed opportunity, but I, I can understand why it it wasn't able to to happen. Uh, okay. If anybody's if anybody's listening to this podcast that is involved with uh, booking events at um, Key Bank Center, or whatever bank we're calling it right now, with the Downtown Arena, or will be in the future. I do think that there is opportunities to do something with the TVT basketball tournament and also basketball events in general beyond the NCAA tournament coming here every four or five years. And if anybody's picking up that mantle and looking to do some of that and promote some basketball events in the city, either in that building or around that area, Riverworks Harbor Center, ECC, Flickinger Center, things like that, you know, call me. I have some ideas and I know some people that have some other ideas. And I think that there is a desire from basketball fans in Western New York to see more basketball events in the winter and the summer uh, in more arenas and less being told, no, that would be cool, but no, we can't do it. No air conditioning or no, that gym doesn't work. I, I'd like to see more opportunities to say yes and, and have some more events and then see if the fan support shows up to, to justify putting those things on. All right. Uh, Florina Altschiller is in the green room. Uh, so I'm going to send the producer back there to get her. And uh, we're going to have her on to talk about uh, the Matt Ariza case, the latest uh, with that, uh, the charges that were not filed. A uh, lot's obviously happened since we last had Florina Altschiller on the show, and uh, she's going to give us her take on the latest developments, which is that Matt Ariza is suing the accuser. Uh, and how unusual that is, uh, the... The approach, uh, is it a legitimate case? I mean, what happens in the legal community here? Uh, I mean, Matt Ariza is also threatened to sue the attorney representing the accuser. So we're going to get into all that, how it works, uh, whether or not uh, Matt Ariza has uh, a strong enough case and whether it goes to, uh, you know, gets uh, gets, a, gets a resolution. Is it gamesmanship? Well, we're going to get into all that with Florine Altschiller here next on Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by... CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business and our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsourced solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business, allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400. 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you. 
We're joined now on Tim Graham and Friends by Florina Altschiller. She is a former sex crimes prosecutor for the state of Alaska and is now a defense attorney with Russo and Gould. She is coming to us from the Russo and Gould offices. Uh, thanks for joining us, Florina. How you been? Great. Thanks for having me, Tim. I uh, wanted to ask you about Matt Ariza. And uh, there's been a lot uh, going on with him since we last spoke about him. Um, I don't know, maybe around a, a year ago at this time is when everything really happened. Right before the bill season began, he was uh, accused uh, of participating in a gang rape while attending San Diego State University. Uh, the uh, girl was 17 years old. And uh, back in December, the district attorney who was uh, overseeing that case declined to press charges against Matt Ariza. Uh, he has been on a bit of a media tour. Um, he was on HBO Real Sports just recently, a pretty compelling uh, interview there in, in which he hinted that he was going to sue the accuser's attorney and the accuser. Well, half of that has come to pass. He is now he is suing the his accuser. Um, how common is this, Florina, in terms of uh, this type of, of case? I'll just, uh, rather than layer on extra details i'll just leave it as open-ended as possible what are your what are your, your thoughts here on on what's transpired here recently as we see in the media this is becoming increasingly more and more common johnny depp sued amber heard for defamation over claims that she made about him being a domestic abuser we see trump suing his accuser um in a civil lawsuit for defamation over her accusation of him raping her now we see Matt Ariza, and this is just from the past year. Normally, this is that defamation claims are not all that common. The reason they're not all that common is because it is difficult to meet the high burden of proving that the statement made was false. You have the burden of proving that the statement made was false, that whatever they said actually definitively did not happen. Not more likely did not happen, but did not happen. If you cannot prove that the statement was false, then your defamation claim for damages fails. So we don't typically see too many of these lawsuits. More recently, we've been seeing them. But here's the catch. My opinion is we're seeing a lot more of them because the people doing the suing are celebrities. These are people who have a lot to lose. And so the lawsuit is actually twofold. One, it's to recover money damages. But two, it's a media battle in terms of their reputation. And so they're using that lawsuit for defamation as a tool to regain or fix the reputation that was tarnished. And that becomes problematic in my opinion. Uh, Dan Gillian, uh, the attorney for the accuser uh, was interviewed by the San Diego Union Tribune and was asked for his uh, reaction to uh, Arise's lawsuit against the accuser. And I thought this was rich. Uh, he His quote is, uh, well, he says that he hasn't seen the lawsuit yet, quote, and we don't litigate in the media, end quote. Um, Dan Gillian uh, was all over the media uh, in the early stages uh, of this case. And so was uh, Matt Arise's attorney, and probably not smartly in, in some regard, uh, his his former attorney. I, I think he had now has a new attorney handling this. Um, but um, you've raised that point of this being, at least to some degree, public relations. 
Um, do you think that this is, and again, I don't want to put, how, how performative is this versus how re, versus being realistic to bring some sort of justice or financial satisfaction to Matt Ariza? I mean, look, Johnny Depp was successful with his defamation lawsuit against Amber Heard. Uh, Trump, less so. So, you know, it's going to depend on the facts. It's going to depend on the attorneys. It's going to depend on the jury, or perhaps there will be a settlement before trial. But I think what it really does is it's used not just as a legal remedy, but it's used as a sword. It's also dangerously used to create a chilling effect from other victims coming forward. Um, now, in this case, this young woman who made these allegations, the district attorney's office has made a determination that there's not sufficient evidence to support her claims. And there's been evidence that was that was brought forward that really suggests that he wasn't even in the bedroom. Uh, which is concerning, right? And false claims can hurt people. We've seen cases where false claims hurt people. People lose their jobs. People have their reputations ruined. People are expelled from school. In this case, he had a very lucrative contract to be on the Buffalo Bills that is gone. And he's in the prime of his football years. And those have been taken from him. He's trying to get on another team. Nobody wants to take him because he's got these civil lawsuits pending. So his damages, his economic damages are very, very real here. The question of did she make these claims knowingly false? is a question to be answered. Um, I, I think he does have a good faith basis to make these allegations and to bring forth this lawsuit. I think the problem though, is there are accusers who make claims and allegations that are true, that are not false. And the DA's office makes a determination for one reason or another, that they can't prove the claims to the high legal standard of beyond a reasonable doubt, which is what's needed in a criminal case. They don't go forward with the charges. And then there's a civil lawsuit for defamation. And that really is a sword to create a chilling effect, to not have victims come forward. And I am very concerned about that in those cases. I don't know that this is one of those cases. Yeah, I think, how difficult is it for Matt Ariza in this case and you mentioned no, she, she has to have be proved to have knowingly made false statements he while he may not have been in the room and there are witness testimony to that effect uh, it's come out through the district attorney's uh uh interview of the accuser which was recorded uh, there's been a transcript i think the audio has been also played in uh, by certain media outlets um that he was not in the room but he did admit that he had sex with her on the side of the house uh, before the alleged gang rape, gang, gang rape incident. Um, I would think that 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 if she were confused and alcohol was involved, all kinds of things that. That that would make it very difficult for him to prove that she was 100 percent certain he wasn't in the room at the time because he was there. Yeah. He was on he was on location if not in the room. So anyway, it gets into a pretty murky territory. 
for sure. And I think he's got a, a difficult hurdle to, to pass, um, to be successful with the defamation lawsuit. But I think where he wins is that he gets his, his side of the story out there. Um, and he gets to rebuild his reputation by saying not only was the criminal case non-existent, right? The DA's office decided not even to pursue charges, but I'm going to send a warning shot right back at her and I'm going to accuse her. And I'm not mincing words here. I'm going to accuse her of being a liar. I'm not saying she's confused. I'm not saying that I'm not guilty criminally, but did something wrong. I am point blank saying that she made false statements and she is a liar and that is a bold move in my opinion and it's a dangerous move because there are women out there who are victims of sexual assault who hear about cases like this and other civil defamation lawsuits when they come forward as victims and unfortunately the message that they hear is don't bother making these claims you can be sued civilly. And I think that's really unfortunate and frankly, outright scary. As far as the public relations aspects of this with Matareza and his image, restoring his image and protecting it, um, I wanted to get your perspective as a legal scholar, but not on the legal aspects of it. And then Tim's kind of perspective as a media person, how much better off might have Matareza been if he had been more open in making these claims in his defense and calling the accuser a liar and things like that early on over a year ago, how much different would things have played out? Do you think since then, if he had been saying the things he's saying now right away? You know, I think that's a difficult thing to do early on. I tell all of my clients not to say anything because the last thing I want is for them to make statements that potentially can be contradicted later on when the evidence comes out. And so I, I don't know that it's a decision that he made. I suspect that he followed the advice of his attorneys. And I suspect that his attorneys told him not to make any statements because as attorneys, we are very cautious. You know, our clients maybe tell us, listen, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. We don't believe that because we don't know. And the last thing we want is for our client to say, I wasn't there. And nine months later, 12 months later, we find out there's video of our client there. And now our client's a liar. Now in this instance, he's not a liar. He's saying he wasn't in the bedroom. There's evidence to support he wasn't in the bedroom. But as his attorney early on, we don't know whether what he's saying is true. We know there's video out there. We haven't had the opportunity to review it. We know there's all sorts of social media stuff. There's a lot of people that are there. There's all these kids that are being interviewed who are at the party. And we have no idea what they're going to say. So the best move is to wait until we have all of the evidence so that we could respond informed and not saying something that's putting our foot in our mouth versus just making these statements right from the beginning and then having those statements be contradicted. How possible is it that this lawsuit against the accuser is being filed just to get her to drop her lawsuit? So that way he can go about uh, resuming his career and he can tell NFL teams, Look, there's no lawsuit. We you don't even need to worry about me being found 
um, guilty in a, for a civil suit or having to find any fault at all, because I think that's something that's hanging out there that teams would not want to bring him in and then have him lose the civil suit. Absolutely. Um, I don't think any team will want him while a lawsuit is pending, period. Even if she drops her lawsuit, if his lawsuit against her is pending, then that's litigation that's going to distract him while he's on a team and a team would not be interested in him. So not only would she need to drop her lawsuit, but then he would need to drop his lawsuit. And certainly those terms are something to be negotiated. I don't know that he's filing his lawsuit just to convince her to drop hers. I think he's filing his lawsuit for two reasons. One, to regain his reputation in the media and to fight this case in the media. And two, to to, to retaliate, to send a warning shot right back at her. Listen, this is nonsense. And now I'm going to try to hold you financially accountable. I think the issue, you know, oftentimes as a defense attorney, I see civil lawsuits where people exaggerate their damages, where people pretend to be more injured than they are. I think this is a case where his damages are very, very real. This is somebody who has economic loss that is indisputable. He was dropped from the bills because of the lawsuit that she filed. He is not on, an, on another football team now because of the lawsuit that she filed. And we're not talking about a kid who was thrown out of Little League. We're talking about an NFL player with a very promising career who lost significant money. So the damages in his lawsuit, I think, are real. And I think they're supported. And so if he's able to get over that very tough hurdle of proving that her statements were knowingly false, intentionally false, then once he gets to damages, that those are softballs. That's easy. He's got a lot of money to potentially recover here. What are your thoughts, uh, Florina, on uh, the sentiment that because charges weren't filed, He's innocent. You know, that's kind of what a lot of, of people like to to say or they, they, they are inclined to believe that he's innocent and the bills not owe him an apology and shame on the bills for not backing their guy uh, a year ago and uh, and releasing him and costing him employment. I would disagree with that. Look, you the, the Bills only knew what the Bills knew at the time when they knew it. And you can't Monday morning quarterback this one. So what the Bills knew is that a lawsuit was filed against him, making some very serious sex assault allegations. The Bills also knew that the DA's office in San Diego was looking into criminal charges. His contract with the Bills explicitly said that if he has litigation against him, not even criminal charges, just a lawsuit, that that can be considered distracting and that they can drop him. So what the bills did is they followed the contract terms and they did exactly what the contract prescribed, which is to drop him if he has a lawsuit pending. And him having a lawsuit pending is not something in dispute. That was a fact at the time that remains a fact now. And that is the number one reason why he cannot be picked up by any other team right now. 
even though the DA's office has determined that they are not pursuing criminal charges against him, no team wants him. And the reason no team wants him is because he still has a civil lawsuit pending against him. So the Bills team did nothing wrong here. They did exactly what any other reasonable team would have done at the time, given the contract that he had with them. Um, in terms of whether or not he's innocent, that's a totally different question. When the DA's office makes a determination that they are not going to prosecute somebody, what that means is that they do not believe that they can prove the charges beyond a reasonable doubt. I have had many cases when I was a sex crimes prosecutor that I declined to prosecute. That means that I decided that I was not comfortable being able to prove those charges beyond a reasonable doubt. And I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to accuse somebody of something that they did not do if I'm not sure. That does not mean that the person didn't do it. What it means is I don't have enough evidence to prove it. There's plenty of people who did it, but there's not enough evidence to prove that they did it. It cannot be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. That also means that a civil lawsuit for the same thing can be possible and can be successful because the standard in a civil lawsuit is a lower standard. It's just by a preponderance of the evidence. More likely than not, the weight of a feather more. So it's a pretty low burden. People may not be prosecuted criminally, and then they might be found responsible civilly. Two very different standards. Neither court asks whether the person is truly innocent. And this is why I should, uh, and I should also mention, I should have mentioned it at the beginning. This is why Florina Altschiller is a legal ana analyst for WKBW Channel 7 in Buffalo, because she is eloquent and breaks it down for us morons uh, in such a <laughs> In simple way. Um, I should also mention Florina is running for town council in Orchard Park. Um, so this is a sports related podcast, Florina. Anything you want to say about the Bills Stadium site and what as uh, Orchard Park town council member uh, you would like to see happen uh, in and around that stadium? Yeah, thanks, Tim. So I am running for Orchard Park Town Council on the Democrat line, and I absolutely support smart development around the stadium. I think we're one of very few places with an NFL team or any major sports team that has zero development around its stadium. And I think that's really an opportunity that the town is missing out on. I think that it's prime fertile land to develop, to put restaurants in, to put a hotel in. And I'm not advocating for putting these things into residential communities. What I'm advocating for is to build and develop around an area that is already commercially zoned, that's going to be seeing tens of thousands of people coming in for Bills games, people who are hungry, people who would love to go out to dinner, people who would love to grab a local beer, People who are coming in from out of town that need a place to stay, that would love to stay in a hotel right by the stadium versus going into the city of Buffalo. And so I believe that currently the town's resistance to that kind of smart development is actually 
causing it to lose out on significant economic opportunity on significant tax dollars that can be brought in from these commercial establishments an opportunity for the town to really be a destination place for people from across the country that are already coming in anyway for Bills games, but they're coming in and they're leaving. I would like them to come in and stay and explore and enjoy everything that Orchard Park has to offer. Well, Florina, thanks for this. I know you have important uh, lawyer things to do. Uh, but uh, giving us part of your afternoon is very kind uh, to uh, educate us about what's going on with uh, the Matariza case or just these types of cases in general, how they work, the thinking behind them, the ramifications, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. And uh, thanks, everyone out there, for checking out Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants.